Technology has completely changed our lives over the past two decades, for better or worse. Smartphones, social media, drones, self-driving cars, smartwatches and appliances. What are the implications for us humans and our privacy? Is every new piece of tech always a good idea? And what will new advances in artificial intelligence mean for the way we live? In today's podcast, I'll talk with U of I computer science lecturer Ryan Cunningham, a specialist in computer security and ethics, about those questions and more. We'll be right back after this. Hey, Jim Rosso, News Gazette Media Vice President, reminding you that we have a ton of podcasts available at newsgazette.com every day of the week, from Dave Gentry's Morning Show to Scott Beatty's News Hour to Brian Barnhart's Penny for Your Thoughts. Head to our website, newsgazette.com, and search for podcasts. Welcome back to Campus Conversation. I'm Julie Worth, and my guest today is Ryan Cunningham, a computer science lecturer at the University of Illinois who teaches ethics courses for the computing profession. He covers everything from ethical decision-making to intellectual property, freedom of information, and privacy, all big issues in the world of computing and social media. Ryan, thanks for being here. Oh, thank you. You have an interesting history. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you did before coming to U of I? So I have this sort of eclectic career. I have dabbled in many things, but never sort of uh, settled on one thing. I'm always wanting to uh, get into the next, uh, I guess, interesting field. Sounds like a journalist, uh, <laughs> actually. <laughs> um, so once I graduated from my um, uh, undergraduate uh, uh, at the University of Cincinnati, um, I ended up working at the National Security Agency for a while. Um, I ended up doing some computer security research, so I ended up uh, doing a talk at Black Hat, which is a hacker conference, which is a very um, interesting community. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> yes. Uh, and then from there, um, I did some um, biology research. Um, I worked for uh, Dow AgroScience doing some um, genetic research uh, using machine learning and artificial intelligence on genetically modified organisms. That sounds interesting, actually. It was very interesting. Um, and then currently, in addition to lecturing in um, the computer science department, I do uh, digital forensics consulting. So I work with uh, defense attorneys to help explain um, digital evidence to clients and go look at digital evidence. So when someone gets in trouble and there's uh, evidence that's on a computer, I can go and look at that and make determinations. About Do you find that clients don't really understand what that means or what the, very what's much, involved in it? Very, yeah, they, they very rarely understand what they're sort of up against. So it's, it's important work. It takes a lot of patience. Um, I actually find, and the attorneys that I work with also find, that my background doing education is really helpful to be able to explain how the stuff works and what the evidence means and how it got there and yeah so I know we're veering off topic here but do you can you talk about a case generally that you've been involved in or you know a, a type of case where you've had to um do that Yeah this is a tricky thing to talk about because I have to be careful uh, sure. you know attorney cl client privilege I'm actually you know in that sort of circle I'll give you an example that's a that's a unusual example um, so one time I had an attorney who uh, there was security camera footage and he wanted to know to what extent it was possible from that security camera footage to use uh, technology to uh, reproduce a tattoo 
Um, so the FBI was claiming that, you know, that they possibly could do this. And he was asking me, can, can they do that? And I was like, yes, they can. <laughs> so I was looking at basically video of an armed robbery <laughs> and oh. looking in like fine detail to see, hey, is that tattoo, you know, could, could the algorithm actually surface this and does technology exist to do this? Wow. Yeah. Are there a lot of people like you doing this? I'm just sorry. We're off topic again, no, but in the legal profession. Totally fine. Um, I mean, helping people in the legal profession with those kinds of questions? No. Um, it It is unusual. And part of the issue is um, is that problem. The, the attorney that I work with most commonly is in St. Louis. And he calls me regularly to, to ask questions about cases just because he can't find people who um, can explain how the technology works. Wow, that is interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, what did you do at NSA? Oh, yeah. Can you talk about that at all? <laughs> Technically, uh, you know. Um, or did that not exist? Does that not that? exist yeah. anymore? Um, I have to be re really careful. You, they literally give you a unclassified resume that you have to, like, run through this declassification process. So I have to be very careful to, like, get the wording right. Got it. Um, but I did... Um, uh, I'll just say hacking <laughs> that, that so uh some forms of of hacking and um some forms of doing um uh analysis of intelligence collection using machine learning and artificial intelligence okay 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 we may come back to that but uh i asked you here because i thought we could explore some of the ethical issues involved in all the technology transformation we've seen you know over the last 20 years obviously it's changed all of our lives with social media and smartphones but, you know, we have we have robots vacuuming our homes and computers, you know, controlling our lights and watches telling us when to get up and move. Do the people who design, you know, the software programs and, the, and these devices consider the human impact and the potential pitfalls as they're doing it? Or are they are there a separate team of ethicists who look at these issues or how does that all interplay? I think largely until somewhat recently, our field has sort of neglected this computer scientists. Um, as a whole, I don't want to, you know, I'm not speaking specifically for, um, any particular company or, mm -hmm. you know, institution, but as a whole, we have sort of been, I would say too excited about the, the, the flashy gizmos and viewed people who were asking about these sort of privacy concerns as people who were being, you know, oh, don't, that, that'll sort itself out. Don't don't worry about that. You know, you're just being old fashioned. You're you're behind the times. The privacy's dead, right? That was actually <laughs> literally a thing that one of the Google uh, CEOs said at one point. Um, wow. And I I respectfully disagree. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you that specific that question specifically, actually. But so, are your types of courses somewhat new? I mean, do most schools have them? I these types of courses have been around for a while. The, the idea that we've had um, ethics courses, we're embedded in the engineering department. And as a part of uh, getting accredited as an, an engineering um, major, one of the things you have to have is, is an ethics course. As people who work in technology, we have this sort of uh, science and technology people tend to sort of frown on humanities, things that are a matter of opinion they they don't like to um sort of consider the fact you know hey sometimes like logic isn't everything emotions feelings matter <laughs> um 
and the impact that you're going to have on other people is very important and you need to put some thought into that. Um, so I would say a lot of these courses up until someone, especially in computer science, um, were taught more as a sort of compliance, like a check mark. Um, and they were taught with a very sort of taught from this per compliance perspective. So, um, you know, here, here's the engineering code of ethics, you know, does this follow that, you know, here's the, um, here's what this engineering institution has to say about this thing. And that's one of the things when I started teaching this course that I very much tried to get away from. I tried to, Oh, another thing that was very common, um, was to teach these like case studies and they were all these like classic case studies, but the case studies. So literally when I took over this CS 210 class, like the textbook that we were using the big, like controversy on copyright was Napster. Like I used Napster when I was a teenager, but none of these kids have even heard of Napster. I was going to say, I've almost forgotten about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, all of the same controversies are still around. You just have to pay attention to find them. Um, so you you updated the course. It sounds like. <laughs> well, it. I always updated every yeah. single like. So the chapter that we're currently doing in the class is this um, regulating speech and commerce is like the the chapter. So it's like how do you deal with controversies about speech online, right? These plat these tech platforms have lots of decisions to make about what content they allow and what content they don't allow. And, you know, again, the textbooks are going to have things like MySpace controversies or, or things, you know, Amanda well, even Todd, two which years is very ago sad. Is outdated, right? right. We're currently doing the Chrysler shooting and oh. Facebook, you know, moving to censor um, white nationalist, white nationalist content today. Right. Yeah. That's now right students seeing that these decisions are being made right now to me is so important that this is not stale that these issues are not something that somebody did 10 years ago and we already sort of decided what to do that they're all live issues and they in their daily work are going to be exposed to these issues i would think the issues change daily just as the technology because because it's changing so fast it's, i mean it's exhausting to keep <laughs> up with it honestly i can imagine yeah. i was going to ask what you thought of that decision today by facebook um i would have to look into like specifically what the details of it are like i heard their announcement but i haven't seen exactly what their policies are going to be and that's really where the sort of rubber meets the road um i think it's probably a good thing that we're you know we don't do things like allow um, ISIS uh, members on social media that are celebrating in the wake of a terrorist attack. I think we should probably have that same standard regardless of the sort of politics of who's, um, who's speaking. Um, by the same token, that is my opinion, I very much try when I'm teaching this course to give students I view it as my mission in the course not to teach students this is right and this is wrong. I want to teach them ethical decision making. I'm sort of trying to tune their ethical compass, help them, you know, sort of make their own moral judgments better and stay true to their own morality rather than it be me saying, like, here's what's right and here's right. what's wrong. Um, I think we get into some problems at institutions when we sort of try to, I don't know. 
indoctrinate students into our way of thinking. I very much don't want to do that. Well, we are supposed to be teaching them exactly. how to think critically, exactly. right? Exactly. And this is, as we said, this is an ever-changing field. So um, I wonder, though, in that case, are, are there freedom of information or freedom of speech issues, do you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the... That is the controversy, I would say, right now, Silicon Valley is probably hitting the most. This idea of weighing freedom of speech versus weighing, you know, moderating this content. Um, I think there is a little bit, maybe we're a little bit naive when we want to say, like, freedom of speech everywhere. I am someone who's very much in favor of freedom of speech and... Um, I think that it's really dangerous anytime we're sort of restricting free speech, but by the same token, I think we're going to make speech itself not particularly valuable if people can drown you out with misinformation, if people can, um, drown you out with just a massive wall of content and fake accounts some of this you know some of the stuff sort of like the uh russians were doing in the 2016 election um we're gonna have to we're gonna have to do something to keep speech having the value that it has and keep speech from becoming just two sides of an issue shouting at each other that's not productive conversation that's not like valuable speech the 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 thing that we value in speech is the exchange of ideas and if we're not exchanging ideas, I think we're actually losing what's important about this freedom. It's part of the problem that, you know, we, I mean, we have libel laws now and, you know, we're obviously free speech people here, but that they haven't figured out a way to translate some of the old rules to this new type of whatever it is, platform media. And, you know, even whether Facebook is a media company or not, or a, you know, content provider, you know, is that, is that, I mean, that do we still need to sort all of that out? Yes, that is absolutely something that we're still sorting out. And I think one of the one of the things that the tech giants kind of hide behind, and I think it's 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 a cop out um, that is really tempting, is this idea of saying sort of, look, we're just the carrier, right? We're not we're not supposed to moderate this content we're just posting it up there i think that would be okay if they weren't at the same time also promoting some content recommending some content um your facebook feed i think a lot of people don't know this your facebook feed is completely curated by facebook now right the 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 feed that you see they're choosing which posts you see and which posts you see first um your experience is, is pretty curated. If they're in there curating it, they're not just being a, a you know, medium. They're not just sending the bits through. That's, and they're not sending everyone's speech and content through without being arbiters. They're acting as arbiters in some way. Right. One of the issues is privacy, obviously, that they dealt with as well beyond content. Yes. <laughs> curation. <laughs> How do you think they're doing? And this has been an issue for a couple of years now, you know, uh, more than that, probably, but Facebook and others, do you think they've made strides or? I think so. I want to say on the speech issue as well. Sorry. I, um, I, 
I feel similarly about both of these. Okay. I think we're starting to, as an industry, sort of wake up here and realize, oh, hey, we have some responsibilities here. And we were being sort of dismissive. So I will give Facebook, Google, uh, you know, all of the Apple, all the tech giants some, uh, some credit here that they are recognizing these controversies. And I think that on this sort of, you know, free speech censorship thing, they're starting to think a little bit more critically about that issue. I think they're doing the same with privacy. Um, I just saw the Apple ad this past week. Uh, you know, they're sort of everybody locking up their secure homes and then oh, we're yes. dedicated to yes, privacy. Yes. So. Um, I think oddly, the biggest problem in secure or in um, privacy is, is not necessarily um, the tech giants. I think they're kind of a symptom of the problem. And I think maybe most people are not aware that the the sort of bucket that all this data is going into are these big data broker companies. Things like Experian and Equifax, but there are also other companies like them, Axiom, um, who are hoovering up a lot of this data about us um, and selling it. I mean, Facebook will not just sell the content of your profile to an advertiser. They will allow an advertiser to target people like you on their platform. These data broker companies will actually sell the data about you. Um, the recent controversy with um, some cell providers, cell phone providers, um, literally selling people's geolocation data, um, selling where you are on a daily basis. I, Silicon Valley is the place where it's present in our minds that our data is being collected, but there is a bigger industry profiting off of that data on the back end and making that data have value that I think we need to do some more thinking about regulating them. The fact that you know, after the Equifax breach, so much financial data on so many Americans was lost, millions and millions and millions of people. And there hasn't been much of a reckoning about that. So yes, I think that there's still a lot of work that we need to do in terms of privacy and thinking about some of the implications of it. But I think, I think tech companies are actually starting to do a lot more thinking about it but I don't think these data broker com these data broker companies are sort of hiding in the background, hoping nobody notices. Them. Well, they've always been collecting our data, yes. right? But it's just a lot easier now. Yep. So is the answer Congress? I mean, federal regulation or I, I want to resist trying to give the answer. Oh. Um, <laughs> okay. Like myself, I don't want to be, um, I don't want to be seen as somebody who's like, on every issue sort of saying, this is what we should do. This is what we should do. I want to be at least in, in this uh, public forum, I want to be seen as someone who's helping the public decide for themselves, be aware of the issue, know what's going on and make decisions. And I, I want, I want our field. This is one of the things that I really try and impress on our students is we need to listen to the public. We need to inform the public. We need to let them know what's going on, but we need to listen to them. This can't be a situation where we come out and tell everything, tell everyone like how things should work. 
that's a recipe for disaster. We're going to engineer a world that works for us, but not for the public. And every time anyone's done that, it's always been terrible. <laughs> the, the result has been really bad. Are you thinking of anything in particular? <laughs> I am reluctant to think of the example that I'm think uh, that, that I have in mind, but um, one of the units that I teach at the beginning of the class is um, to sort of impress on students how important this is. I teach them about uh, there was this technology company, very early technology company, called Dehomag. Um, there were a German company that sold Hollerinth machines. So Hollerinth ma machines. Okay. These were um, early counting machines, basically. Um, and those machines were used by the Germans to do um, the 1939 census. It's, it's part of how they tabulated and kept track of what eventually the data that they used in the Holocaust. Um, wow. There are really serious implications to how we set up this technology and who is vulnerable uh, to its abuse. And like I said, I, I want the public to be a part of that discussion. I want the public to be the ones that tell us what we should be doing. Earlier, you said some tech people said privacy is dead anyway, and you strongly disagree. I mean, some days, you know, I see Google cars coming by and taking pictures of my yard while my kids are playing in them, right? I've seen that with friends. Like, I literally saw a friend's daughter standing in the yard. I think they blurred her face, but on their Google Earth right. picture, you know, I mean, what, what expectation, you know, and people posting, you know, videos of anybody doing anything in public, you know, what expectation of privacy do we have now? Um, when everyone sort of says this notion of like, is, oh, privacy's dead, I always want to immediately ask them, okay, what's your email password? <laughs> what's your credit card number? Let me look at your browser history, right? Privacy's not dead. <laughs> people want it. Yeah. Um, people still want privacy and expect privacy and we're going to have to work through social norms and regulatory norms that are going to secure the kind of privacy that we want and like i said that is where we need to have this public conversation we need to tell the public about hey <laughs> the data that these data brokers for example most people don't even think about them very much. Right. I mean, if you go and look at your credit report, it's kind of creepy how much information they have about you. And the fact that, you know, they're not, I would say, the most cutting edge c companies in terms of security. I mean, that's why we had this big Equifax right. breach. Um, and that they, I mean, there are some of these data broker companies that have been caught selling data to scammers. Like as customers, the, the scammer just made an account and started buying the data so the scammer could then, you know, use your credit history, for example. So they don't to, even check who they're selling it to? They sometimes do a poor job of that. Wow. Um, but what I'm trying to say is I, th I think if we're going to navigate, if we're going to find out uh, uh, what privacy means in the digital age, the thing that we need to do is have a conversation about it. And that conversation cannot be Silicon Valley dictating what privacy means now it needs to be that we in the computing field listen to the public and what the public wants and expects and then we try and meet that with the technology that we have that's the future we need to get to are there groups in the profession doing that or is it people like you who teach these courses 
saying this or, you know, is there an organized effort to do what you're talking about? Yes. I mean, that that's been the um, there have been a lot of efforts to spin up courses in ethics, um, bringing ethics specifically into um, into the field. There are researchers who this is their entire, you know, precisely what kind of privacy guarantees we can give um, and and when they will work and when they won't. Um, yes, there are lots of people in the field working on specifically this kind of question. Do you think there needs to be more high profile efforts um, involving, you know, Google just appointed some advisory council. I think you probably know more about this than yes. I do for AI, for artificial intelligence. And I mean, do, do we need like a national council on computing ethics or something? Or <laughs> I know you don't uh, want to talk about we, specific answers. We, but. we have this. We have people thinking about, you know, uh, what it means to be an ethical computer scientist. Okay. I want to hit a couple of other specific issues, yeah, sure. if you don't mind. Uh, the European Union this week passed a new measure to protect copyright for people like artists and musicians whose content proliferates on the Internet, and I know it was controversial there. I don't know how much you've talked about it with your class, but what did you make of that? I understand that one thing, it may mean fewer memes on the Internet. <laughs> yeah, I'm... Some of these things are tricky because that is a massive body of regulation. And it is going to be regulating an entire, basically, continent worth right. of people. I am not sure what the implications will be. That is such a big thing for me to wrap my head around. I sincerely don't know what the ramifications will be. It sounded I don't like know whether or not it will actually be enforceable. I don't know if it will work. That is, that's the question that I have. I see. The, because it's because the the web is so much bigger than one continent, or it's not just that the web is so much bigger. It's that the population of and and the the social norms and expectations of the way that people behave. So, for example, you know this notion of like memes going away, people remixing content, and then the concern is that this law basically allows you to um, proactively remove content like that. <laughs> try to take it down um, in a much less um, much less consumer friendly way that's probably the best way of putting it um, you mean that the tech companies will to make sure they're complying with the law will proactively remove things yes proactively remove things but not in the same I mean YouTube for example proactively removes content that's copyrighted but the person who's made the post um, has some ability to has a lot more redress than than this law um, would give, um, and again, it is much more proactive. In other words, you would be sort of filtering someone from even trying to uh, post the content in the first place. So that's the that's the issue. That's the controversy. The thing that I wonder is with so many people whose social expectation is that they are going to post these you know memes and remixes and things that we sort of do all the time as as um as commonplace people probably still do it anyway I, I suspect it will be very hard to to prevent that but maybe i'm wrong and maybe this will be some big crackdown i don't know it's hard it's hard to predict that i assume what they're proposing is very different from what the u.s has right now or? yes yes again it is that like proactive system and it's legally backed proactive I can't imagine them prosecuting millions of you know Instagram users or whoever whoever posts the most meat you know I it just <laughs> well I don't so again it would just be that the content gets removed right, the content right, right. just gets taken down but 
people will find ways to circumvent it, right? People are going to find ways to uh, modify the image just enough so it passes by the filters that these companies put up. Um, how good are the filters? How good are people are uh, are people at getting around it? I don't know, but uh, it's very difficult to. I mean, we mentioned Napster earlier. It was very difficult to get that taken down um, or the pirate bay. You know, if people do this stuff, it's very difficult to regulate in that way. If, if enough people are doing it, it's hard to stop them. Right, right. Um, so I'm old enough to remember before email, before the Internet. And I remember the day the iPhone came out, people lining up. What are, you know, those were all big developments, obviously. There have been others. But what are the what are the sort of cutting edge developments now that pose new issues of ethics or privacy or whatever is it you know i don't know a lot about quantum computing i know that's the next big thing uh, artificial intelligence seems to me to be a big minefield of these kinds of issues i don't know what what would you say or um so i would say so quantum computing is a thing where there's been hype about it for a very long time i can remember 10 years ago, even 15 years ago, people saying like, oh, quantum computing is coming. I don't, I don't know. I don't know um, whether we will see that. <laughs> uh, it seems rather sci-fi right now. but Yes. Um, it would have huge implications. If it becomes practical, it will be a big deal. Um, but currently we, you know, I would say the consumer doesn't need to think about <laughs> Good. That. But machine learning and AI, that is something that we have made huge strides in and it's something that uh, is having an impact on us. We are, I was talking about those social media feeds and the, the recommendations that YouTube is making to you. Um, that is all in some way, some form of machine learning, data mining or AI um, in the background. We are interacting with these algorithms very regularly and we're moving these um, machine learning based decisions. Uh, basically, we're, we're <laughs> moving AI into bigger and bigger um, decisions, more decisions of more gravity. We're already using them, for example, um, to try to predict recidivism um, before letting someone out, out of prison, out of prison. So we're, we're deciding whether or not we keep someone in prison, at least in part, based on these algorithms. Um, these algorithms are driving cars now. Um, and at least, you know, one or two people have been, have been killed by them. Um, well, and, you know, I don't know how much algorithms were involved in the Boeing crashes, but, you know, that's I mean, that's a high profile sort of. Yes. Computer taking over <laughs> your plane, you know, example. But. Yes, that was that was poorly implemented right. software that and but that that's something that we also need to think about um just the sort of responsibility that software developers have for the the products that they create um but yes no question that the biggest thing we're going to have to deal with is um machine learning and ai that's and machine learning for those of us who are you know lay people it's you know literally the computer gathering all this data and learning from it, right? And making yes. predictions. So machine or... learning generally, when computer scientists are talking about machine learning, we're talking about a computer learning from example. So you, um, you want to train it to learn the difference between dog pictures and cat pictures. You show them a bunch of dog pictures. You show them a bunch of cat pictures. And, you know, 
try and teach it to tell the difference between the two. And then hopefully um, it eventually learns to do that on its own. Um, so that's machine learning. AI is sort of a broader uh, term. Um, so artificial intelligence, it, it encompasses that, but it also encompasses things like something we would call like reinforcement learning. The machine tries to do something and sees if it succeeds and then tries again and keeps trying until it does it right. Um, so yeah, there are these different sort of paradigms for teaching a computer and for a computer to learn something. And it does sound, you know, this sounds very scary, you know, in terms of all the movies we've seen over the years of computers taking over the world. I think it's really funny, actually. This, this was something that I was thinking about last week, that in the 80s, we sort of had all these movies, um, Terminator and mm -hmm. stuff like that, uh, war games, where that were like reflecting all the anxieties we had at the time about computers. Um, and now we are actually like facing the very dilemmas that in the 80s we that were a part of our science fiction movies. Should we... Uh, arm robots. Yeah. We're actually I mean, the, right now doing that. And right. to what extent should we do it? And to what extent should a human be in the loop? These are all decisions that we're, they're not science fiction. We're doing them every day. So who's sort of in charge of all these decisions? <laughs> you know, I mean, does it just depend on the venue? I yeah, mean, it depends on the organization. It depends on, um, you know, ultimately the, the leadership, I think, of the, the organizations. I know some of the algorithm issues have cropped up in the news too in terms of you know racial components of you know i yes. think was it is it facebook that was brought to task for that because of using it for job or job applications yes. or, or housing well, ads or something yes there there have been a few issues um um related to this notion of facebook allowing people to target ads directly based on gender or race so potentially you could be uh only selling housing to white people, that's a pretty uh, concerning type of. We used to call that to redlining. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. And Facebook got in legal trouble for that, but that was more. That was less about the sort of machine learning bias and more about like human bias. <laughs> Humans just uh, deciding that they wanted to do that. Um, but there have been a few systems. So, for example, I was talking about that recidivism, mm -hmm. um, or uh, sometimes a. Uh, well, let's just talk about the recidivism one, for example. Um, there was a ProPublica study that was saying, hey, um, because of sort of proxy uh, factors, things like where you live, um, things like income, being a part of what this algorithm is using to decide the probability of your recidivism, um, there's a racial bias there. You know, people of color live in similar areas white people live in similar areas um we're racially segregated we're racially segregated by income and because of that the algorithm can sort of in the background pick that up and um someone with similar background but of a different race would actually be given different probability of recidivism and just based on where they live basically right? exactly but underneath that is race, right? And is that just? Is that fair? For such a big decision. Yeah, especially for such a consequential decision about whether we let someone be a free member of society or not. That's huge. Um, and figuring out essentially 
what it means for these algorithms to be fair, um, how we avoid this notion, we call it proxy discrimination. So an, you're not, so I talked about the difference between dogs and cats, right? Like the machine learning, teaching the algorithm to learn the difference between dogs and cats. Um, you're not in the data that you're giving the computer telling the computer what race a person is, but maybe it figures it out anyway based on other factors. Uh, that's what we call this notion of proxy discrimination. And we we really need to be mindful of this. These machine learning algorithms, um, there's a, a famous example that a machine learning researcher gives um, in sort of, uh, he was trying to train a machine learning algorithm and he was trying to teach it the difference between dogs and wolves, oh. right? So he was giving it photos of dogs and wolves yeah. and he trained the algorithm and it did perfectly. And he was like, this is amazing. Like, I can't believe my algorithm did this well. Um, it, it perfectly could distinguish between dogs and wolves. And then he looked at his data a little more and he realized, oh, in the background of all of the wolf pictures, there was snow. And in the background of all the dog pictures, it was grass, oh. right? This notion that these algorithms, I sometimes sort of say they like cheat, but you know, <laughs> that they'll find the simplest way to tell the difference between things. And that might not have any, that, that might be some confounding variable that you didn't think about. Oh. And you need to be very careful about that. Um, w one of the, the recent things that people, uh, have been concerned with these, with the, using these algorithms to detect pedestrians in self-driving cars is they're not good. They're not as good at detecting, um, uh, people of color. Oh my gosh. Because were they trained with white pictures? pictures uh, presumably, white presumably oh <laughs> that's the issue. Um, so yes, we have to be really careful about, about. Um, what, what it is we're building. And the, the biggest problem with machine learning and AI stuff is uh, that these technologies, the, the researchers that are building the model don't necessarily, they couldn't explain to you what it is that, that the computer is learning to tell the difference between, you know, cats and dogs, for example, right? Um, the, the internal model, the internal representation is very complicated. Basically, we can't tell you sometimes why the computer can tell you this is a cat and that is a dog. Wow. That's kind of frightening, too. So I just read a study or a headline about a study uh, about it was a neuroscience and it was talking about how you make decisions based a lot on emotion and the experiences you've had. You know, that this idea of objective decision making is sort of not really true in Absolutely. your brain. Um, so... You know, when we think about computers being trained essentially to make decisions, like, are there people trying to teach computers emotions? And <laughs> yes, the, that is that is a whole area of um, so. So one of the big things that we try to study in AI as like a broader um, subject is what it means to be intelligent. What is intelligence? What is uh, cognition? Mm -hmm. What is sentience? Um so yeah, we ask all kinds of questions um, and, and there are researchers trying to do things like uh, build machines that are like affective, that, that, that pick up on emotion and themselves somehow mimic emotion um, or make decisions with emotion. Um, interestingly though, it's, it's, it's interesting that you bring up that issue. So one of the, the, the other um, moral 
uh, concerns with these sort of machine learning approaches. Um, people advocating that we use them. So saying, for example, the recidivism, to, to, to take it back to that example, predicting recidivism. Prior to having this algorithm, it was entirely made based on emotion. It was entirely made on a human subjective interpretation of the data. If the algorithms are less biased than a human decision maker would have been, isn't that an improvement? And that, that's one of the, the arguments sort of in favor of using these algorithms, that maybe, maybe this is good. Maybe taking the human out of the loop is actually going to make a more fair world. I think we should be very skeptical and very careful about that, but um, I think it's a good point. <laughs> it's something we're thinking about. This article, on the other hand, pointed out that the best decisions are made when sort of both are present, you know, that, that we make our best decisions because we or we're different from computers and we make better decisions because we lend a little emotion to it. So that's why I wondered if, right. I mean, everybody always thinks of AI as, you know, a robot. Do you watch Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? I don't know. The, yeah. you know, the <laughs> Ada robot gone crazy, you know, humanoid type robot. So I don't know. Are we, are we progressing towards something like that? And is that uh, people There are want people that? That, that, that think that, that that is the future of these types of algorithms that we should make. Um, one of the sort of closing discussions that I have with students during the semester is on this topic. Like, if we're training computers, can we train computers to make ethical decisions themselves? I mean, we kind of are already. If, we're, if we have a self-driving car and that self-driving car is deciding, you know, in an emergency what it should do, um, you know, it's making an ethical choice somehow. <laughs> Um, or at least the programmer that's programming the car is making an ethical choice. Um, so if we can make computers that make ethical decisions, should we? Should we take ourselves out of the loop? Um, if we can make a decision, if we can make a computer that is making moral decisions and, and we think it's actually behaving as a moral agent, right? The same way that, you know, if we can say, no, bad computer, you did the wrong thing, that was unethical computer, does that give us moral responsibility to that computer? <laughs> right? Like, in the same way that I have a moral responsibility, you know, should I be treating it like a person? Like a child? You're yeah, yeah, it. yeah. Um, and the thing that always blows my mind in terms of a question is, what about that question the other way around? Like, does the computer have a moral obligation to us <laughs> in the end? Um yeah, I think we're going to end up in the next, you know, 20 or 30 years with some very interesting ethical <laughs> dilemmas All in right. computer well, science. It sounds like we could probably have another conversation in a little while about some of more things that will come up. All right. Well, we have to wrap this up. But thank you so much for being here. It was really interesting. And, it was great. And we'll follow up.